0: Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, please? We're going to look at the entire chapter today. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew, one of the disciples, records for us an extended section of things that happened at a particular time, and the Word of God is true in every particular It's not something we pick or choose and we say, well, that really happened, but this didn't, and now since the scientists tell us that there was never any single individual the human race began with, then I guess we have to modify scriptures so that we can do proper obeisance to the scientists, Um, the word of God written is without error. And I'm going to tell you, those of you who are starting the university, um, every year at the beginning of the university year, I try to remind you that every minute of every day we're making a decision whom to believe. We believe God, we believe man. And many, many times the words of man are true because they conform to the word of God. You read Pascal, great, one of the greatest mathematicians that ever lived, and he writes his pensée and they're filled with truth because he honored God. And there are all kinds of brilliant scientists and literary men and women, poets, playwrights, who honored God and this is the reason Bach's work is above all other work, because every work began with sola dea gloria, all glory to God. And so I encourage you not simply to realize that you make a decision between lies and truth each day, but I want you particularly to note that you make that decision every Sunday morning. And that God has been pleased to be used the foolishness of preaching. I am not reading a paper It's not been vetted by other academics. It's vetted by the word of God. And it's your job every week to look at what the text says, to decide whether or not what I say has faithfulness to the text, and then to realize that my words are the word of God to you. And that this has been always how God has spoken to man. He doesn't come to you directly, personally, through Scripture, bypassing man. But Scripture comes proclaimed. God is pleased to proclaim it. He was pleased to proclaim it through John the Baptist. He's pleased to proclaim it through his son, Jesus Christ. He's pleased to proclaim it through Peter, through Stephen as he died a martyr's death, through Paul, all through history, God has been pleased to have the Word of God proclaimed. And except for Jesus Christ, every single person who's proclaimed it has been a sinful man. And so when you come to church Sunday morning, you're not hearing the word of man. That's the whole rest of the week, unless it's your wife and then it's pretty close. That's that's a joke. When you come to church, you're hearing the word of God. Calvin actually says that preaching is the word of God. And I know that's scandalous to us because you look at me and you go, uh-uh. And I join you, but you examine what I say by scripture. If it conforms to scripture, if it honors scripture, it is God speaking to you. And you listen, There is nothing I'd like better. And this is pathetic to say this. There's nothing I'd like better than to to tell you, don't worry, that's not true. Because the weight that creates for me and the rejection that that cultivates from you is so clear to me and it only becomes more clear as I age. We just don't think of preaching as being anything other than personal devotions writ large. You know, it's it's like me and Jesus, but somehow I guess Tim has to be involved. <laughs> and it seems as stupid to me as it does to you. But the fact is that God says that he's pleased to use, and he calls it the foolishness of preaching. And so... When Calvin talks about preaching being the word of God, he then says God could have sent angels, but he sent sinful men. And then he says, why? Why would God do that when he could have sent perfection to proclaim? And he says, because it humbles you. Because you have to eat out of the hand of a man who's a sinner and who is your inferior And so today, what I want to say to you is every time you come to worship, you make a decision whether you will hear the voice of God or not. And I know that sounds bodacious, but check it and see if it isn't true. Read 1 Corinthians. And as you make a decision whether or not to have your heart open to the words that God speaks to you from the pulpit here, I want you to realize that there will be many flies and moths and mud wasps and birds that will try to land on your head and pick off the seed of the word of God. You remember Jesus talks about the different kinds of soil. Some soil fell on hard ground and the birds came. And ask yourself, is is your heart, is your head hard ground right now right now or is it soft has it been prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive the preaching of God's word and you'll never if your heart is hard you'll never ever look at your rejection of the preaching of God's word as being the result of a hard heart because it's the nature of hard heart to deny its heart a soft heart always Claims that it's hard. <laughs> right? A soft heart says, I have a hard heart. A hard heart says, I have a soft heart. So if you think that the reason that you get up and walk out of a worship service is, are you, are you with me? Is because you have a soccer game to get to. Ah. Stop and think. Stop and think. If you think the reason you're getting up and leaving a worship service is because um, you have a, 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 an exam you have to prepare for. Eh. If you think it's because the pastor used the word sodomy. And that's something up with which you may not put. Eh. Every single time you respond to the preaching of God's word, you are in place spiritually. And you need to give yourself the one thing that no postmodern has, and that's personal moral responsibility. That's dignity the dignity of your action, the dignity of your judgment, the dignity of your heart. Always look at the way you respond to preaching as a perfect barometer for your heart's condition before God. And I'm going to tell you that there is only one thing always in play, and that one thing is repentance. I have never seen somebody get up from a worship service because they had a soccer game to go to and observed repentance in their hearts as they left. (laughs) You know? It is amazing to me how disrespectful of God and of his people and their worship we are today. And it's because we don't think of ourselves as having personal moral responsibility or dignity. We, we, we think all our actions are superficial. And we think we're masters of our destiny while still being victims. It's a weird, perverse doubling up. You know, where we think that our father's responsible for all the things we don't like in our life and that we're responsible for all the things we do like, and often that means that we take pride in the things we should be ashamed of, and then the things we're ashamed of, we blame on our father. You know, it's like, dude, I I keep saying, the one thing that feminism should have given women is moral agency, and yet somehow no woman is ever responsible for having an abortion and killing her unborn child. How does that happen? You know, finally, women are seizing their destiny. But no woman is ever responsible for an abortion. You, each Sunday, are responsible for whether you're in bed or you are under the preaching of the word. Now, if you were my children, I would look at you and I would say, do you understand me? That's what I'm saying to you this morning, those of you who are starting a new year. You're responsible before God for the stewardship of your Sundays, your Lord's days. You're responsible for your approach to the worship of the people of God. You're responsible for your hands, for whether you kneel. You're responsible for whether your heart is soft. You're responsible for how you listen to sermons. You're responsible to repent when God calls you to himself. And if you don't do it, you can come up with all the excuses in the world about why, you know, this and that and the other thing and, you know, you know, you can be a perfect small postmodern man, woman. But one day you will stand before God and give an accounting. And your accounting will be for how you have handled the treasure of the people of God, the worship of God, the preaching of the Bible. And so don't take your eye off the ball. The ball is God at IU. Okay? Now, you think <laughs> you think that that was just a rant of self-importance. <laughs> okay? Maybe you haven't thought that. But now that I've said it, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Right? Okay, listen. It does come from the text we're going to read this morning. All right? So let me show Um, you have it in front of you, right? When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while in prison, this is John the Baptist, and he was in prison because he told the mayor, the ruler, the Roman guy, that he should not be living with his brother's wife. So John was a preacher of righteousness. He said, you shouldn't be living with her. It's against God's law, and he was thrown in prison. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, I think I'm going to stop and go through uh, short sections instead of reading it all and then coming back. Let's look at this first. Now, first notice, the one thing in our world today you're never supposed to do is make a distinction. But you remember Jesus said that on the judgment day he will separate the sheep from the goats. And so it must be a good thing because God promises that he's going to do it. Now, we're, some of us are sort of okay with separating the sheep from the goats, but what we don't think God has any right doing is separating some sheep from other sheep. In other words, once you live by faith, then you should all be one. It should be a melange. You know, It shouldn't be like you're better than them or you're higher or you're lower because hierarchy's sinful. And yet notice that he's teaching... Of all the people following him, he's teaching a particular group. How many in that group? We actually know the number. And it's how many? It's 12. And so Jesus made distinctions among his followers, and he chose to invest himself more in some than others, all right? That's the first thing I want you to see. All right. He departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, I want you also to keep in mind that Jesus also made distinctions geographically. And if you will, I know this is difficult to hear, he would not have been in Bloomington. He would have been in Bedford, he would have been in Spencer, or more likely Brazil, or Cuba, or wherever, Peru, or all those, Poland, Poland. yeah, Poland, (laughs) you know. Or he would have been in Martinsville, The racist community of Martinsville. Now, I'm not saying that because I don't like Martinsville. I will not eat corn unless it comes from Martinsville. Okay? I'm saying that because Martinsville has a reputation and it's not good in Bloomington. All right? This is reality. And so when Jesus went out to preach and to do his miracles, he went to the places that were despised by Bloomington. He did not go to Jerusalem except to die. Okay? He went out to the hinterlands where people who were despised and, and worked for a living rather than talking for a living, where they lived. Okay? Now when John, while in prison, heard and said to him, Are you heard of the works of Christ? He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we come, shall we look for someone else? Now the expected one was the Messiah. And the Messiah was expected to have a ministry and an authority and a power which was radical. And a lot of the Gospels only make sense when you understand that they thought finally the Messiah would bring them back to the victories of David and Solomon. So it would be a military victory. They'd be done with the oppression of Rome. They'd again be a proud nation. They'd again be rich. They'd again have all the glories of David and Solomon. But as John the Baptist watches Jesus, it's obvious that he's having some doubt about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Now, why would he have doubt? Well, listen to how John the Baptist speaks of Jesus as he's coming. He says in Luke 3, he began saying, that this is John the Baptist, he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so the Messiah was supposed to come with wrath, obviously wrath, if he's gonna end the oppression of Rome. You know, men don't kill while they're playing a kazoo. Right? From the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, now listen, The axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he speaks of the coming Messiah as being the axe at the root that will cut down what doesn't bear fruit. In other words, the Messiah is going to be intense and he's going to bring judgment. Not simply on Rome, but also on the people of God who don't bear fruit. Now, is that sweet to you? Is it sweet that God's purpose is to judge those who do not bear fruit? So this is how John thinks of the Messiah as he announces him. Then in Luke 3, a little bit later, John answered and said to them all, as for me, so he's, 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 um, he's bringing his work, his ministry, his preaching Uh, into perspective with Jesus, the Messiah. And he's saying, as for me, but for him. All right, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. So acts at the root, mightier. Are you with me? And I am not unfit to untie the thong of his sandals. So in other words, he's he's unbelievably more important than I am. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we've got an axe, we've got power, we have fire. His winnowing fork, now none of us have grown up on a farm. but A winnowing fork separates, and what it separates is the, the stuff you want to keep and the stuff you want to burn. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So we've got uh, the axe, we've got fire, we have unquenchable fire, we have the winnowing fork, so with many other exhortations he gave them. Now, this is John speaking of the coming Messiah, the one who he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he speaks of him very intensely, as bringing judgment that consists of power, that consists of an axe, that consists of fire and being burned up. Now, with that as the background, and of course he does what God called him to do, he condemns Herod for living in adultery of a particularly perverse kind. All right? And there in prison, he sees Jesus doing what? What's Jesus doing? Is Jesus going around with an axe and fire? No, he's not. He is eating and drinking and hanging with sinners. Now, you can understand why John the Baptist would be slightly discombobulated about Jesus. Here he is suffering for righteousness. And here Jesus is Eating and drinking with sinners. All right? Everybody with me now. You feel the tension for John the Baptist, right? So he sends his disciples and asks Jesus, Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said, to them, the disciples that had come with the question, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. Now right there we have a velveteen rabbit story, don't we? You know, Grimm's fairy tale, but no Grimm. It's just all sweet. Right? It's like a Disney flick without any bad guy. You know, the blind see, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and, 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 And a little boy's loaf of bread feeds 5,000. Go tell John. But then at the very end, there is a little thing said that should make you stop and think. Because the last statement is the poor have the gospel preached to them, the blacks, the sodomites the third world, the Southern Hemisphere, Brazil, Martinsville. In other words, one of the identifying marks that Jesus singles out to reassure John that he indeed is the Messiah is the fact that it's not the rich that are getting preached to but that's really a negative way to say it. Let's say it positively. The poor are having the gospel preached to them. And every single time I single out something from the text to highlight to you, take a, take a measurement of your heart and see whether you are delighted in the things that please God. That it's the poor that God singled out. It was the poor that he announced the birth in Bethlehem to. It was the poor that he chose the disciples from. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders in the book of Acts said that they were, they were, they were amazed that the apostles were unschooled, ordinary men. But they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. And so this is Jesus' defense. Yep, I'm the Messiah, and one of the ways you know it is, I didn't go to Bloomington. I went to Brazil. Now you may be rich. There were rich. Remember Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb to Jesus to be buried in. He was rich, and he loved Jesus. But listen, if you're rich you will take delight in the fact that God turns his back on the rich and preaches to the poor. Every single pastor, when he gets done seminary, has to choose where he's going to seek a call. <laughs> right? Right? You all know this. I mean, if you're going to get an MBA, you have to choose what company you're going to use your MBA at. Right? And of course, at the very top of your list as you decide where to be a steward of your MBA is whether there is a poor church nearby, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, of course not. You just sell out for the money. Whoever's going to pay you best and has good work uh, benefits, you know, and if your wife can get a job there too so you can earn 150 to 200 instead of just 100 Now listen, I've been here 20 years and then before this I was in Boston and Boulder and then Madison, Wisconsin and then Wheaton. So I know you. And what the Bible tells us is, the Bible tells us the poor have the gospel preached to them and that's the mark that the preaching is godly. When Joseph left our seminary with David Abbasar and the two of them chose a place to go, there were there there was considerable, uh, I think the word is uh, hope of remuneration, not numeration, remuneration. If they would go up to the northeast side of town, Bloomington, I mean Indianapolis, and oh man, it was enticing. You know, people there who were rich and had real dignity and could really help the church get started. So you know where Joseph and uh, David Abbasara went? Speedway. And that's where the church is. That's where they live. So Joseph, this is my son, by the way, but anyhow. So Joseph was at a meeting of church planners and they were all bemoaning the fact that the, the cities and towns that they were in, none of them, they had noise ordinances, they had parking ordinances, they wouldn't allow their schools to be used. There was no place for them to meet. And it was because they were all planning in, in rich communities, you know? I mean, I won't name any, because some of you would be offended, but those of us here in Bloomington know what the names are. And one of them is, is really mispronounced, if I may, if I may say so. <laughs> And so after a while, Joseph said that he was very happy that he was not looking for space in any of those cities. And and they said, well, don't you think rich people, you, you must not think rich people need the gospel. And Joseph said, no, he said, I just don't think I'd be faithful to the word of God if I was preaching to rich people. Come on, guys. Money, 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 money. Come on. Thank you. All right, I'll do it again. Esther, I love you. Money, 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 money. My mother used to say, Tim, you're not fooling anybody. And the final qualification was that he was preaching to the poor. And that's how they knew this was the Messiah. Now, I'm hoping that I've offended you with my specificity about remuneration. Because then the next verse makes perfect sense. The next verse is, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. (laughs) It's like, I love Jesus! Because he just doesn't flatter me. He just gives it to me straight. And he knows precisely when to say, blessed is he who is not offended at me, you know? And we go, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I am. And he says, well, then stop being it because blessed is he who is not offended at me. As these men were going away, now think about them, well, and then he said, don't be offended at him, John. You know, imagine the report they carried back. And the poor are being preached to him. Blessed are you if you're not offended at it. He said, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Now you can imagine if you were there and you heard the questions coming from John's disciples, you would have thought to yourself, well, that man is, that man is I mean, it's very sad to see, to see uh, you know, to see the, the degree to which he's doubting you know, can't you imagine the people listening or judging him? And so Jesus will have none of that because every godly man is weak. And Jesus won't have them dissing John, even in their thoughts. And so Jesus defends John. And look at how he does it. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Why don't you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? And of course, it's ludicrous. John was not a reed being shaken by the wind. You know, if he'll stand up to Herod and to Herod's wife, which was actually the more formidable opponent, nobody in the right mind would describe him as a reed blowing in the wind, right? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Oh man, everybody knew he stank because he lived in the wilderness and he didn't have proper attire. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palace as well. He was in a palace of a sort. He was in Herod's dungeon. But what did you go out to see? And you can just imagine Jesus rubbing their nose in it. I mean, how we end up with Jesus is sort of a pansy, long-haired, hippie freak dude that goes around going, peace, dude, peace. You know, and Jesus says, but what did you go see? Come on, come on, come on. What did you go see? Are read did you go see a guy in fine clothing? Brooks Brothers? Abercrombie and Fish? what did you go to see? And now Jesus is bringing around and, and, and he's setting the hook. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This, eh, they were ready to diss him. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger, God says it, ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. <laughs> Wouldn't you have loved to have Jesus say that you were the one that was sent to prepare his way? I mean, imagine the compliment that was to John the Baptist. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, and yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, right? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Oh boy. (laughs) You know, Jesus is just doing it to us. Jesus is saying that manliness is employed by the Holy Spirit as part of being born again and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that manly men, not machismo, manly men will pursue the kingdom of heaven in their manliness in a way that no woman will approve of. Do you understand me? If you have never had your husband make decisions about you and your children that cause you to think he's a monster, you don't know anything about this verse. It suffers violence, and violent men take it by storm. This, people, is an endorsement of the U.S. Marine Corps. Not the politics, not the particularities, but the violence and zeal. This is why we have the music we have in this church. We want you someplace in your pathetic life my pathetic life, okay, I'm, I'm there too, some place to see violent men taking the kingdom of God by force. We intentionally try to have the music loud so that you have to surrender to the worship of God. And that's what we see all through the, book of, all through the Old Testament. That's what we see commended in the book of Revelation. That's what we see commended in the book of Psalms. They commend the loudness Jesus doesn't say extraneous things. Where is the place in your life for violence in seeking the kingdom of God? You say, Well, certainly not bass and drums. I say, Okay, okay, that, I'm an idiot. All right, that's fine. But then where? The Bible says that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Now, nobody can be offended at this part of my violence thing. So, if you're supposed to seek the kingdom of God with violence, nobody can object to me saying, if if this is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in Ephesians, then you should be unbelievably adept at wielding this sword of the Spirit. And nobody can be offended at that because I'm just honoring Scripture, right? And yet you're pathetic in your knowledge of Scripture. Absolutely pathetic. And so, violent men seize it by storm. You say, well, it doesn't have anything to do with bass or drums. It doesn't have anything to do with vibrato and the guitar. It has to do with the Word of God. And I say, okay, so, accurate and precise with the Word of God? Sharper than a two-edged sword in the application of it? You see, you don't believe in violent men seizing the kingdom of God by force. You think that maleness is something to be repented of, let alone violent maleness. Come on, come on. If Jesus had not said this and you'd never heard it and I just said it today, you'd all spit on me. Violent men seize it by force? Well, that's not entirely positive, is it? You know, it reminds me of <laughs> Hadley, you know. it's talking to Hadley about Nick. This is Nick's last Sunday, so I might as well single him out. And I went up to, was it, no, it was, yeah, yeah, it was Hadley, yeah. And I said, you know, Hadley, you have a wonderful man, and Nick, wonderful. It was the dedication of the new building here. And I said, you know the thing I love most about Nick? And he said, no, what's that? And I said, the thing I love most about Nick is is he's an unrepentant male. And immediately, Hadley grinned and beamed at me, because, of course, every man knows that's true of Nick, and every man delights in it, right? I won't have him stand up, but. Everything from his shoulders to his chin. I love his chin. And there was, there was a woman standing right next to Hadley of a certain age, which I will not mention because you'd all spit on me if I did, and of a certain ethnicity, which I certainly won't mention. And she looked up at me right after I'd said that and she said, well, I'm not sure that's entirely good, is it? I had said, he's an unrepentant male. And she said, I'm not sure that's entirely good, is it? And I'd been waiting for that moment. (laughs) And I looked her in the face and I said, yes, it is completely and utterly good. And Hadley was behind her and he still grinned at me. (laughs) Violent men seize it by force you will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're violent in your pursuit of it. And you can define violence any way you want. But I tell you something, unregenerate people, no matter how you define violence, unregenerate people will hate whatever your violence is. Because you will be a fundamentalist, and that's the essential definition of a fundamentalist, is anybody that pursues the kingdom of heaven with violence. It is a cult. You will have left the land of the civilized and the educated if you pursue this kingdom of God with violence. Do you understand? This is very clear, people. Very, very clear. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't that sweet how Jesus keeps circling back and saying, Blessed is he who doesn't take offense. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, you're still with me. That's what Jesus is saying. Still with me? Still with me? Still with me? Have I offended you yet? But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. And then the son of man came eating and drinking and they say behold a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see this? In other words, these guys are all fickle they can't be pleased by the preaching of God's word. It doesn't matter how it comes to them. If it's downbeat, it's too downbeat. If it's upbeat, it's too upbeat. Never will they admit that they will not repent. Never, never, never will they admit that they won't repent. Never will they say, I'm a proud man who won't listen. No, no, no. Remember I said at the very beginning when I had that rant, I said to you that it comes directly from the text. Souls who are proud and will not repent always place the onus on the preacher. Never on themselves, never. It's always the preacher's fault. And you can call out my sins, and there are many, but how on earth do you call out the sins of Jesus Christ? Never honest. My heart's hard and I'm a proud man and I'm a rich man. But Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. And John the Baptist is, isn't uplifting. And so God sent them both. And they say, we played a dirge for you and you would not. And we played, and then we had, little kids do that, don't they? They copy adults. And so they played funeral and they played wedding and there was Susie and she didn't like who was playing the kazoo and she didn't like who was dancing and it's just nothing, you know. And he says, that's the way you people are. You wouldn't listen to John the Baptist and now you won't listen to me. Now, now, you all feel this, don't you, huh? How fickle you are towards God. He has to send you the perfect preacher. He needs to be thin, he needs to be 30. He needs to not be uh, proud and not sinful. He needs to know your name. It's just all the things that we use to condemn our preachers. And he's speaking to particular people in a particular place. And, and you think Jesus is, is just this sweet grandpa going long hair and peace, peace, right? right? Now watch what he does next. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Why did he denounce them? Not because he didn't pray the sinner's prayer, but because they didn't repent. He denounced particular cities. Woe to you, Bedford. Woe to you, Seymour. For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And the Tyre and Sidon were cities notorious for their wickedness. Now, you know, I changed the word. I changed it to local cities, so understand that, please. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, Tyre and Sidon, notorious for their wickedness, will be judged less harshly than these cities where Jesus is right then. And you, Capernaum, you, Martinsville, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to hell, to Hades. For if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, we have removed Sodom and Sodomy from our language. But you have to know what Sodom and Sodomy are. Sodom was the city that had brimstone and fire rained upon it, and it was wiped out by God as an act of judgment. The entire city was wiped out. And it was wiped out because of its notorious sexual immorality, which was sodomy. That's where the word, it's been in use for over 2,000 years. You look at the OED and you'll see, all right? and because it was proud, and because it was inhospitable. It had no pity for the poor. So homosexuality and no pity for the poor and pride. And he says that it will go better for Sodom. Imagine how Sodom was absolutely, absolutely despised by the people of God, the Jews. And he says it will go better for Sodom than it will for Capernaum. Why? Because God incarnate had come and had done miracles and had preached to the poor and they had not repented. Now, where are you? Are you still with me? Take your pulse, take your temperature, take your blood pressure. This is the preaching of God's word. If I have done violence to the text and not been faithful to it, then judge it. If I've been faithful, then take your pulse and see if you're still with me. This is Jesus. This is not me. Now watch. At this point, any reasonable person would say, but of course, you. Do you know that in the first service, precisely at this point, two men got up and walked out. As soon as I explained... Sodom and sodomy. Two men got up and walked out. And of course, we would say, well, you know, they had an appointment. You know, they had this, that, and the other thing. And, and, you know, it was just incidental. It had nothing to do with the fact that you just used the word sodomy. I think it was P.T. Barnum who said that no one has ever gone bankrupt underestimating the average intelligence of the American people. People, we respond to scripture. We respond. You are a moral agent. You right now are making a decision whether you will honor man or honor God. You will look in the face of Jesus speaking of Sodom. And you will look at yourself and say, am I still on board or will I choose to be politically correct? Do I love homosexuals or do I despise them? And of course, if you love homosexuals, you'll say, yeah, that's Sodom and that's sodomy. And they need to repent as I've repented of fornication and adultery and everything that's in this church. But those who despise homosexuals will never call them to repent. Because why? Because they're proud And if they don't repent, why should a sodomite have to repent? (laughs) So now, come back to Jesus. He's just gotten done speaking of it being more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for them. Right? And then he says this. Are you with me? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. (laughs) Now listen, isn't this great? Isn't this perfect for Bloomington? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, 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 Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. It pleases God to hide this from the rich. To hide it from the intelligent. The influential. The important. It's well pleasing to reveal it to the ignorant and the uneducated and the poor and babies. That pleases God. To hide it and to reveal it all things have been handed over to me by my father. Put yourself there. And this monster, think of the things he's said and how monstrous they are. And then he says, all things have been handed to me by my father. It doesn't sound to me like he's trying to find a a middle ground as he comes to an end, realizing that he's been really, really offensive, you know. Better lower the rhetoric a little bit right before we get done so that we can sing a closing hymn and go home. Right. It sounds to me like he's still in what G.K. Chesterton refers to as the afortiori part of the argument. How much more, you know? Seems like Jesus is coldly, passionately, violently designing every single word to add weight to the word that preceded it, right? And occasionally to stop and say, you still with me? Right? And so listen all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father. Nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone who makes a decision for the son. Because Jesus has done everything that he possibly could do and only one thing is left, which is for you to choose him. Right? Is that what the text says, people? That's not what the text says. Accept the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now listen, you be honest with me. I won't usually preach this long, but I got this burning in me and I have to finish it. I really won't usually be this long. But listen, I tell you, this chapter is perfectly calculated to leave you utterly devastated, with no place to turn. Every squirrely way that you want to escape the authority of God, the 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 election of God. The choice of God, the glory of God, the unconditional surrender of repentance, as the sine qua known of a religious life. Every weasel path that you could design to escape that has been taken away from you. Do you understand me? There is no place to run and no place to hide. And you, right now, make one of two decisions. You either make a decision that God is God and you are a worm and that you are going to fall on your face before God and repent and believe or you must judge him. Him, not me, him. You must judge his son. Because his son knew how to use the sword, knew how to use the buckler, knew how to use the lance, knew, knows how to use an AK-47. And he's shot you with every weapon that God has in his arsenal. And he leaves you quivering on the ground and you either rise up and say, I ain't dead yet. OK? Or you say, "I'm dead and my trespasses in sins, and I give myself to the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins." That's it. There's only two choices. Now, now listen, because <laughs> we're not done. This is the trip. You're jello on the floor. And you say, I surrender all. And then, what does he say to you? He's just gotten done saying, he chooses, you don't. And then he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. (laughs) For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now why am I smiling? Well, I'm smiling because we we trot that out like it's a popsicle. You know, it's like, here, sweetie, grandpa has a piece of heart candy for you. Listen, God hates the proud. The Bible tells us God resists the proud. This chapter is a nuclear bomb against the pride of man. And it's over. And then when you think that you have a choice left, Jesus says and you don't even have a choice. You heard that, right? And then he says, come to me. That's why I'm smiling because, I mean, come on. I'm smiling because I don't think that I have anything to bring in my hands. I don't think that prophesy means that I'm going to heaven. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a clang, symbol, I'm brass. The gift of prophecy, I'm nothing. And yet Jesus says, "Come." And he says, "He'll give me rest. And so, it's the beginning of a new year. Do you want rest? Real rest, real rest that only God can give you. Yes. So do I. And that's why I'm smiling. Because it's just like the most incongruous, unbelievable thing that anybody could ever have designed. You know? That Curtis gets rest. Michael gets rest you know and Ben trembling with tears when he first came to church he just couldn't believe that God would forgive him and you say well he must have done something real bad and I say not nearly as bad as what you've done but the Lord had softened his heart and so he came okay I'm not good at closing, so I'll just stop. But Jesus, Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come. So come already. Come.